Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Welcome to 2020. Can you believe we're already a couple of weeks into the new year? I mean, it feels like just yesterday we were all drinking sparkling, you know, apple juice and rocking out to Old Lang Sane, Old Lane Sign, you know, the New Year song. Okay, maybe not rocking out, but the point is that now it's a new year signaling a time for new resolutions, new goals, and for our purposes, exciting new research on social policy. And in this spirit of newness on this episode, we're going to try out a different way to share some compelling nascent work of researchers here at the Urban Institute. We're calling it top of mind, like What's top of mind for some of our experts here? And it'll give you a sense of some of the topics we think are a big deal in the coming year. And we're thinking about doing other top of mind podcasts later this year. So let us know if you like it. You can always email us at criticalvalueurban.org. And of course, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts when you have a minute. We're trying to get to 200 ratings. And with your help, we can do it. First up, we have an Urban Institute rock star who has a one-of-a-kind perspective of our work here. I'm Marge Turner, Senior Vice President for Program Planning and Management here at Urban Institute. Awesome. And what does that mean? What do you actually do here? Well, that is a great <laughs> question. One thing I've said is that I meddle in everybody's work. <laughs> and it's one of the most fun parts of the job is really getting to learn what people are doing on topics I don't know as much about, but also challenge them to to stretch a little, mm -hmm. talk to each other about the intersections between areas of work. You get to be a cook in a lot of different kitchens. Yes, it's really fun, both because I get to learn a lot and I feel that having someone threading between Urban's many, many, many areas of work helps make the whole greater than the sum of the parts. Marge walked me through three major themes she envisions at Urban for the coming year. One really important theme is to focus on solutions and how can we build knowledge that powers and informs and strengthens solutions. So often research and researchers get bogged down documenting problems in ever more gory detail. And that's important. You got to understand the problem and the drivers of the problem if you're going to find good solutions. But at some point, you have to stop and start talking to some people who think they may have some solutions and get as much on the cutting edge of the solution conversation as you are on the cutting edge of the of documenting the problem part of the conversation. But I think that's going to really characterize our work going forward. Theme number two, continuing to grapple with racial disparities across every social and economic issue. Urban has done a good job of documenting racial disparities and often a good job at evaluating efforts to narrow some of those gaps. But what I think we can do better 
is really understanding how the persistence of racism, some of it personal and some of it institutional, traps us in a status quo of enormous disparities. And if we don't face to that trap in a way, I don't think we will be able to help power solutions that unlock it, that move our country out of this trap. It's clearly relevant in just about every aspect of housing and housing policy. For a very long time, the U.S. has had extreme residential segregation, a huge and widening gap in home ownership opportunity between white people and people of color, huge disparities in the quality of neighborhoods where white people and people of color live, and considerable disparities in housing quality and housing affordability. Those issues are now getting a lot more attention at every level of government than they have in the past. But the legacy of racial discrimination and segregation runs through every one of those issues. And if we are going to help craft and advance really effective solutions that make housing more affordable, that make neighborhoods more equitable, that give people real access to stable housing in great places to live, we have to face up to the legacy of segregation and discrimination and find ways to actively overcome it. And theme three, how can we do a better job of applying new technologies to urban's research? This is not some radically new thing for the Urban Institute. We have been a pioneer in all kinds of really exciting research technologies since our founding. We're really stretching ourselves to use the cloud, to use new technologies, to use new kinds and quantities of data. And it's very exciting. It's also challenging because if you're a sophisticated researcher who knows a policy space well, you may actually be kind of behind on these technologies and it's hard for you to imagine what's possible. So this is a chance to partner experienced, sophisticated researchers with young, more technologically savvy researchers. And again, with folks out in the world of practice and invent some exciting new ways of building knowledge that really powers change. So those are a few of the big picture issues we'll be exploring, but let's take a closer look at that last area with our next expert. Hi, my name is Graham MacDonald, and I am the chief data scientist here at the Urban Institute. Graham has taken a head start on thinking about how to integrate new technologies into our research. What I'm really excited about in 2020 is the ability of technology to start democratizing data. I think one of the biggest issues we have today is there's so much data out there, and we're talking about things like data science and AI and all of these big terms that, you know, data is increasing and never expanding rate, data is the new oil, all of these new sort of like, you know, data phrases, we're in this hype cycle of data. And we forget that so many people don't have analytical capabilities. They don't have the ability to even take advantage of this. You know, if data is the new oil, nobody has a car. And so 
what we'll be doing in, in data science team in 2020 is building a suite of technology and tools that really allow the expertise of urban researchers and the data that we have to be transmitted in a way that allows everyday people to visualize and take advantage of this massive data and data analytics capability. And it's a pretty cool idea, right? But how do you actually do that? How do you build the car that the data can help to power? One example is that Urban's tech and data team will be building an education data portal that puts together 30 different data sets from across six government agencies into a single place will be putting the power of all of these different education data sets that in the past would have taken researchers here at Urban even weeks to assemble and get an answer out of. And we're going to make it available so you can analyze 600 million rows of education enrollment data in seconds, right? So this data is now all in one place. It's sitting there in an API. What that means is we can now build any sort of web application on it. And what's important is that this kind of data integration allows for a new type of analysis that can really inform policy, that can really be, and this is a big word here at Urban, actionable for communities and policymakers. We could do things like build a congressional data dashboard where, you know, it could summarize the data at the congressional district level. So you could, as a congressional representative or you're, you know, your constituent of a congressperson, you can go in and see where's the trend for bullying in this district. Why is it so much worse than the one next door? What can we do about it? Maybe I can pressure my congressperson or write them a, you know, an angry letter to figure out like, well, why why aren't we doing something about this? can also use it for comparative purposes. You know, you, you could imagine a dashboard that would allow a school district to do those sort of easy comparisons where you said, hey, I want to look at, you know, enrollment over time by location, just so I can understand which schools are receiving more funding or aren't, or which you know, undergraduate majors are more popular. Or you can imagine it for a number of different scenarios where people are trying to take data and compare them across different jurisdictions or just understand what's going on in their jurisdiction. And the effort of pulling together these data can also be a democratizing force and help to reach more people than we could have in the past. But I think there is a basic level where we know these data really well. We know there are advantages, we know there are disadvantages. And to the extent that we can put that data in the hands of more people that don't have that expertise, but allow them to understand at some basic level what they can do and can't do with it and how they can use it to improve policy or improve outcomes in their community. I think we're allowing our expertise to scale in a way that we can't in a report. So I would love to see you know, more technology, more tools this year that can allow our expertise to scale and really elevate the debate across many more people than we could have otherwise. 2020 also promises to be a critical year for the future of climate change. According to tonight's dire new assessment from 13 federal agencies, government scientists warning the impacts of climate change are intensifying. Climate-related threats to Americans' physical, social, and economic well-being are rising from coast to coast. Carlos Martin, a senior fellow here at Urban, is taking the next year to look at what climate change means for communities. I think the bigger questions that we're dealing with in the climate crisis, uh, other than, of course, trying to mitigate it and trying to stop future climate change, is how are local communities dealing with it? What can they do? What decisions can they make, not only for their individual households, their properties, their families, but also for their whole communities? And Carlos says that it's time to get serious. The planet is burning. It's already happening. I'm a big believer in continuing the research and proving the evidence that climate change is human-induced and that that needs to stop. There's a 
big open-ended question about who's going to be able to have the resources to respond, who has the political wherewithal to make change and make decisions about their communities, and what that going to end up looking like? Is it going to be a new series of seawalls and levees around a community? It's going to be mass migration and relocation. That's my goal out of my research work is to explore what those options are and what outcomes are going to come from them. Carlos is also impressed and inspired by how the youth have tackled this ongoing crisis. School kids led the charge, walking out of class, demanding world leaders take action to prevent further global warming and climate change. We are witnessing the destruction of our planet. I feel powerful knowing that I am on the right side of history. Michael, we're here with thousands of protesters right underneath Parliament. And what's so striking, besides just the sheer size of protesters here, are the age of people who are demonstrating. Almost all of them are students. This group behind me, just nine years old, we spoke to a group of 17-year-olds who said they're here today to fight for their future. We've never seen youth that engaged in this subject area. And it inspires me, but it inspires me in ways that make me want to act and not just admire them and make me think that it's my responsibility to actually be supporting the efforts that they're doing on the streets. What worries me is that it's falling on deaf ears. One area of new work for Carlos is looking at the migration impacts of climate change. I'm really excited about a new project that we're launching related to the climate migration literature and practice, but really looking at the receiving communities. So not just looking at the reasons why people move or how they move or what forces them to move, but also where they go to, how they receive. We have a history of migration in this country that hasn't always come out positively. So I'm really excited about launching this work as well as hosting the first climate migration summit convening that I've heard of in the U.S. here at Urban Institute next year. And for people that are not politicians and policymakers, what actions can they take to engage on these issues? Does my city have a climate plan? Are there local environmental justice groups that I can talk to, that I can support, that I can volunteer with to help air the issue and make sure that other people are doing something? Also, being involved politically, thinking about if I'm concerned about my neighborhood and the existence of my neighborhood and the air that I breathe, the water that we drink, where is this coming from? What government is to help and make sure that I have good quality air, good quality water, and who ends up paying for it? Our final researcher is looking forward to spending 2020 thinking about an oft-hidden part of local policymaking, land use zoning, and its effect on the nation's housing supply. Yeah, I'm Solomon Green. I'm a senior fellow in the Research to Action Lab and the Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center at the Urban Institute. Zoning, which refers to designating areas for different activities like housing or retail or industry, usually doesn't get a lot of attention. But Solomon talked about how that's changing. There's a growing awareness of the role that local land use regulations and zoning restrictions have played and continue to play in creating and perpetuating racial segregation and exclusion. We see both greater need and some evidence, although again, huge research gaps suggest that local land use restrictions are a major cause or contributor to the problem. It isn't just a issue of housing affordability. It's also where affordable housing can be built and how local land use and zoning regulations uh, for a long time, essentially uh, since their beginning, have been used as a tool to segregate and divide communities. 
zoning and regulation is starting to come up more and more in policy reform conversations. For a long time, I've been working on issues of local land use and zoning and how it affects our housing supply. It's been really interesting to see how those issues have really heated up already in the past year with a lot of local governments innovating and taking a hard look at their own local land use regulations and finding ways to improve them to respond to the increased demand for affordable housing that we're seeing across the country. So we're seeing it paralleled at the federal level with increasingly candidates talking about a more robust role that the federal government could play, overseeing local land use and providing incentives for land use reforms. And since many of these reform ideas are new, Solomon says it will be important to fill knowledge gaps about what works and what doesn't. He's looking to spend some of the next year pulling together a data set that will allow new types of analyses. Land use decision-making is traditionally very local and it's very complex. And we've seen that it's hard to compare existing zoning regimes as well as the reforms that people are experimenting with across places. There just simply isn't good data. So to compare across very different jurisdictions Typically, you'd have to go through and manually code zoning codes, manually review zoning codes. If Solomon and team are able to create this data resource around local zoning codes, he says it can really inform in a, you know, actionable way how policymakers might weigh changes to zoning and land use. What does the local zoning code really look like and how can it improve and especially If you're adopting state or even federal policy, what should these policymakers be looking at when they're asking for reform? I think this further motivates our work in terms of wanting to be able to create the data, not just that local and regional governments can look at, but also as uh, other policymakers are trying to figure out how to support sensible reform without actually stifling all of the good reasons that we do have zoning and land use. There are legitimate reasons, whether they be environmental or health and safety or reducing congestion or limiting development to available infrastructure. There are legitimate reasons to have zoning and land use. There are also illegitimate reasons or reasons that are actually causing more harm than good. Again, to be able to make this determination takes a really nuanced understanding of how communities regulate land. And we're hoping to be able to provide the kind of data that would allow for that understanding. So building new data sets to help create a more equitable future. Now that is a New Year's resolution that the Urban Institute can definitely get behind. So that's our show. Thanks again to Marge Turner, Graham McDonald, Carlos Martin, and Solomon Green. And please remember to take a second and leave a rating for us on iTunes. It helps others to find the show, and we love hearing your feedback. And if you have any comments or questions, you can always email us at criticalvalue at urban.org. Huge thank you to producers Jacinth Jones, Kate Villarreal, Rob Abair, Katie Smith, and to our sound editor, Riley Byrne, from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.